if you have a Bible, either a printed copy like I have, or you have a digital copy on your phone, let me encourage you to hold it up and repeat after me what we believe about this book. This is God's Word. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. It is the supreme source of truth for what we believe and how we live. Now open up your copy of God's Word with me to John's Gospel, John chapter 6. John chapter 6. There are all types of bread out there today and there are all brands of bread. You have Sunbeam, you have Sara Lee, you had King's Hawaiian, you have Pepper Ridge Farms, and you have the kind that we have in our house, Nature's Own. We use Nature's Own whole white wheat. And the reason we have that is because it's full of fiber. And my wife says, at my age, I need the fiber. But, but then there's another bread. It's called Wonder Bread. Wonder Bread was one of the first sliced pre-packaged breads. In 1921, a guy looked up and he saw these hot air balloons and he was awestruck by the wonder of those hot air balloons and he named that bread Wonder Bread. But we know today that there's only one real Wonder Bread and that's Jesus, the bread of life. Now four weeks ago we began a, a walk through the Gospel of John and we began by looking at pictures that reveal Jesus' nature, who he is, what he came to do. And, and we saw that Jesus is the Word of God. Jesus communicates who God is. Jesus communicates what God does. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the only one who can bring light into our life, into our world that has been darkened by sin. And Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the one and only all-time sacrifice for your sins and the sins of the world. And one day, the Bible says that all of the redeemed of all ages and all of the heavenly hosts will gather together and worship the Lamb of God. But today I want us to look at that fourth picture that reveals who Jesus is, and that is Jesus is the bread of life. Now, there's no accident that Jesus, the bread of life, was born in Bethlehem, which means house of bread. God planned it that way. Now, in Jesus' life, you had to have bread to survive. You had to have bread to be sustained in life. Bread not only caused you to thrive, but bread caused you to survive. And today, Jesus is the only one that can really bring survival to our life, and, and he is the only way that we can really thrive in life. Now, let me give you a little bit of background in, in John chapter 6, if your Bibles are open. The chapter begins with Jesus feeding 5,000 plus, the Bible tells us it was 5,000 men, so 5,000 men plus women and children with five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, that's a miracle, isn't it? Somehow, by a work of God, Jesus took those five loaves and those two fish, and he fed thousands upon thousands of people. 
And because of that miracle, the Bible says that the people wanted to make him king, but Jesus didn't come to earth to be an earthly king. So the Bible says that Jesus left them, went to a mountainside, and, and he prayed. Well, as evening time came, Jesus' disciples, the twelve, they got in their boat and they left where they were, went across the Sea of Galilee to the town of Capernaum. And, and we're told in Scripture that as it got dark, a storm arose on the Sea of Galilee. And storms oftentimes would just come out of nowhere on the Sea of Galilee. But Mark's Gospel tells us that this was a very dangerous storm. In other words, the disciples were fearing for their lives as the wind was blowing and the waves were crashing and the lightning was flashing. And all of a sudden, they saw this man that was walking on the water. And you can imagine, they were scared to death until they realized that it was Jesus. And as soon as Jesus stepped into the boat, the storm stopped. And they were still scared to death because of the power of Jesus. John's Gospel tells us that immediately they were on shore on the other side in Capernaum. Well, the next morning, the, the people that had gathered and Jesus had fed them with the five loaves and the two fish, they began looking for Jesus. And, and they realized that, that there was only one boat on the shore that night and Jesus wasn't in the boat, only the disciples. And so they were trying to find Jesus. They couldn't find him on that side. And, and so finally they got into boats and went to the other side. And they finally found Jesus teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. And the very first thing that they said to Jesus is, how did you get here? I mean, there was only one boat. Jesus didn't take the boat, and yet he was there on the other side of the sea. And they were trying to figure out, how did Jesus get here? But what you need to understand is Jesus didn't answer their question. And what you need to understand today is Jesus doesn't always answer your question. You know, life is filled with questions. Would you agree with that? I mean, we have questions of why things happen, how things happen, what, what can be done. We have all these questions, and sometimes God gives us clear answers. There are other times that God seems to give no answer. And you need to understand that. God doesn't always give you the answer that you're looking for. But what God did do, or what Jesus did do, is he entered into a dialogue with this crowd who had crossed over the Sea of Galilee. And this dialogue gave us three responses to Jesus from the crowd. As Jesus talked to the crowd, three things came out about the crowd. The first thing that came out was this. Some, and, and probably many, maybe most, Follow Jesus for purely selfish reasons. Let me say that again. You need to hear that. Some, and, and probably most, follow Jesus for purely selfish reasons. Listen to what it says in verse 26. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you. Not because you understood the miraculous signs. But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy, work at seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. Now don't miss what Jesus said. This is so important. You want to be with me because I fed you. You want to be with me because I 
filled your belly. I met your needs. And now you want to follow me because you want me to meet your needs all the time. You see, all too often, that's why people follow Jesus. We see Jesus as this great need meter. We come to Jesus because he wants us to meet our needs. And, and our prayers expose that, don't they? Lord, provide this. Lord, do this. Lord, take care of this. God, what are you going to do for me now? We want a God that will serve us rather than a God that we will serve. But that's backwards. You see, God isn't our celestial servant. God isn't our heavenly butler. God is the sovereign God. One lady, after she became a Christian and after she began to grow in her faith, wrote this. She said, as a new Christian, I presumed that Jesus' main job was to take care of me. He led me to a job, roommates to share apartment costs, and a car that ran. But after a while, my taste got fussier. Like the Israelites waking up to manna each morning, I was tired of the same old, same old. I wanted a house with more privacy. A more interesting and better paying job, but less stressful. I wanted a shinier new car. My list continued to grow. I wanted Jesus to perk me up when I was down, remove all my difficulties and make living a whole lot easier. And when those things didn't come, I felt as if Jesus had walked away from me. And isn't that how we feel? Isn't that how we act? I, I mean, when Jesus meets our need, when he gives us what we want, we think everything's okay. He's right there beside us. We're tight with him. But when he doesn't give us what we want, we just naturally assume that Jesus has walked away. Max Licato, in his book Six Hours, One Friday, writes this. He said, for some, Jesus is a good luck charm, the rabbit's foot redeemer. Pocket-sized, handy, easily packaged, easily understood, easily diagrammed. You can put his picture on your wall or you can stick it in your wallet as insurance. You can frame him, dangle him from your rearview mirror, or glue him to your dashboard. His specialty, getting you out of a jam. Need a parking place? Rub the Redeemer. Need help on a quiz? Pull out the rabbit's foot God. No help to have a, no need to have a relationship with him. No need to love him. Just keep him in your pocket next to your four-leaf clover. You see, for many, Jesus is no different than a genie in a bottle. We rub the bottle when we need him, and out he comes to do whatever we ask of him. New job, new car, new and improved spouse. Whatever we want, we ask, and he gives it. Our wish is his command. And what's more, he conveniently re-enters the bottle when we don't want him around. I mean, when he tells us something that we don't want him to hear, we just put him back in the bottle. Is that the kind of Jesus you want? One who is here when you need him, but goes back in the bottle when you don't need him? I mean, if that's what you're looking for, then listen, you're not looking for Jesus. Jesus will meet your need. The Bible says, my God will provide all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. 
The Bible tells us that one of his names is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. He will love you like a father, but listen, he is the sovereign. We are the servants, not the other way around. But it goes further. Jesus said to them, your focus is wrong. He told them to get your focus off of the temporal and get your focus on the eternal. I believe with all my heart, the greatest problem in American Christianity is our focus, our eyes, our attention, our desires are on the here and now instead of the forever and ever. Our work, our prayers, our thoughts are on here without realizing there is an eternity that we need to prepare for. Listen, there's more to life than the here and now. There's an eternity that is waiting for us. So some were following Jesus for selfish reasons. But the second thing we learn is some believe that they have to work their way to God. Notice what the people said in response to Jesus' words in verse 28. They replied, we want to follow God, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. Now when they started listening to Jesus, they immediately misunderstood him. They assumed since Jesus told them to not work for the food that was perishable, instead work for the eternal, that they had to work to earn God's favor. So they asked Jesus, what work do we have to do? And that's the problem. That's the problem with all religions. That's the problem with religious people. We believe that we can earn our way to God's grace. If we do enough penance, if we attend enough services, if we give enough money, if we help enough people, if we live a good enough life, then we can make it. But that's not how it works. The New Living Translation says, this is the only work God wants from you. But a more accurate translation of the Greek is, this is the work of God. What Jesus was saying is, you don't work to earn God's favor. No, God's favor is something that God gives to you. Salvation is a work of God. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. You don't do something for it. It's something that God does for you. And he says all you have to do is believe. Now the Greek word that Jesus uses there is the, is the word that's translated every time in the New Testament, believe or trust is the Greek word pisteo and, and it doesn't simply mean to believe facts with your mind it means to trust to commit and, and the truth of the matter is when we truly trust we will commit for instance if if Gavin sees that there's a poisonous snake behind me and Gavin says Pastor Rocky jump to me I'll catch you. And I really believe that Gavin will catch me. I believe that he has the strength to catch me and he has the desire to catch me. 
and I really believe that there's something behind me that can hurt me, I will commit to jump to Gavin. If I trust him, I'll commit. Or let me give you another example. Suppose someone comes to you and says, I've got an investment that, let me just tell you, it's a solid investment, and if you trust me on this, you'll be able to retire when you want to. Now, if you believe their financial advice, if you trust them, then you will commit your money to them. Let's think about this in terms of Jesus. If I really believe that Jesus will forgive me, he will save me, he will sustain me to the end, then I will commit my life to him. So salvation isn't something we work for, it's a work of God, and all we have to do is is believe, trust him, commit to him. So some follow Jesus for, for purely selfish reasons. Others are confused and believe they have to work their way into God's favor. But then some want truth before they're going to believe. When Jesus told them, all you have to do is believe, I want you to notice what they said. They answered, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scriptures say Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us this bread every day. Now, instead of believing and just simply trusting Jesus, they said, you've got to give us proof. And the proof they wanted was a miracle like God did when they were wandering in the wilderness. You remember the story, don't you? People got hungry. They began grumbling against Moses, against God. And God rained down manna from heaven. Manna was bread that had a sweet taste to it. And for 40 years, every single morning, as they wandered in the wilderness, God gave them bread. And the people were saying, if you want us to really believe you, then you need to do like Moses did. They were confused. Moses didn't do it. God did it. So what they were saying, but if you want us to believe you, you've got to rain down bread for us, and you've got to feed us every day just like God did in the wilderness. And what's interesting to me is that that John's gospel gives us seven signs, gives us seven miracles that Jesus is powerful. He's all-powerful and that he is who he said he was. And five of these miracles had already taken place when the people asked for proof, when the people asked for a sign. He had turned the water into wine. He had healed the nobleman's son. He had healed the cripple at the pool of Bethesda. He had fed the 5,000. And the people that were there now asking him to give us a miracle if you want us to believe you, they were there when he did that miracle. They were there when he took those five loaves of bread and those two fish and fed thousands and thousands of people. But now they're saying that's not enough. And that's how people are. No matter what you show them, they still don't believe. That's how the Pharisees were. That's how the Sadducees were. They always wanted a little more proof, a little more evidence, a little more convincing. But the truth is they had all the proof they needed. 
they had simply made up their minds and hardened their hearts, we're told earlier, because their deeds were evil. You see, they didn't refuse to believe because there wasn't evidence. They refused to believe because they knew if they believed, it would radically change their lives. And believing in Jesus always radically changes our lives. Now, maybe you're one of those who is looking for more proof, but I would say, what more proof do you really need? Jesus died on the cross. The evidence is there. He was buried in a tomb, dead. And he rose from the grave three days later. The evidence is there. If you want to believe, there is plenty of evidence for you to believe. But notice what Jesus said. He said the true bread is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So what did the people say? The people said, okay, give us that bread every single day. They still didn't understand. They were thinking about their bellies. They were thinking about the temporal. It didn't matter how many times Jesus told them something. They still didn't get it. So listen to Jesus' response. He gives that response in in verse 35. He says, I am the bread of life. Now Jesus' answer revealed that man's every need is met in him. You think that you want bread that will fill your belly? But what you really need is the bread of life that will fill your soul. And Jesus tells him three things that as the bread of life, he gives us. First of all, Jesus gives us salvation. Look at verse 40. It says, For it is my Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him should have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Now go down to verse 47. It says, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes has eternal life. Yes, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate man in the wilderness, but they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And this bread, which I will offer so the world may live, is my flesh, my body. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am going to give my body so that everyone in the world can live forever. So that everyone can have eternal life. Now, it's not on the screen, but I want you to go back and look at verse 44. Notice what Jesus said there. He said, for no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me. And at the last day, I will raise them up. Now, notice something. The salvation that Jesus brings, that Jesus gives, begins with the Father drawing us. Now, does that mean that some can be saved and some can't be saved? That's what some people believe. But I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. In John chapter 12, verse 32, it says this. Jesus is speaking and it says, And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. Jesus said, When I'm crucified, I am going to draw all people to myself. John Phillips said it this way. He said, God does not invite people to come and then make it impossible for them to come. 
what Jesus is saying is that salvation begins with God. In John 16, Jesus said this. He said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict of sin, the need for righteousness, and there is a judgment that is to come. God is the one who seeks us out. God is the one who convicts us of our sin. And God is the one who attracts us to Jesus. Salvation is a work of God. It's not a work of man. Now, how does he do that? Well, look at verse 45. Verse 45 begins this way. As it is written in the scriptures, they will be taught by God. Now, Romans 10 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15, the apostle Paul tells us that the Holy Scriptures are able to give wisdom that makes us wise or leads us to salvation. Listen, God uses his word empowered by the Holy Spirit to draw people to himself. In the Old Testament, it says God's word will not, will never return void. God uses his word, infused, empowered by his spirit to bring people to Jesus. Listen to me. Whenever you share God's word with people through a plan of salvation, through a, through a gospel story, God can use that word to draw people to himself. So God draws What's our responsibility? Well, we've already seen all we have to do is believe. Six times in this chapter, we're told to believe. Verse 47, look at it again. It says, anyone who believes. The Father draws and we believe. You will never be saved until you are drawn by the Father and you make a choice to believe in Jesus. John Hanna said this. He said, no one who is ever in hell will ever be able to say, you put me here, God. Did you hear that? No one who is in hell will be able to say, God, you put me here. But then he goes on to say, and no one who is in heaven will ever be able to say, I put myself here. When you go to hell, you go there because you have chosen to reject the grace and the mercy of God. When you go to heaven... You don't get there because of something you've done. You get there because you have simply accepted the free gift from God of eternal life. I can say with complete confidence that no one who has ever come to Jesus has been turned away. No single person who wants to be saved cannot be saved. God will save anyone and everyone who wants to be saved, the wickedest, the vilest who have come to Jesus are received with open arms. Jesus gives salvation, but next Jesus gives satisfaction. And I believe with all my heart, everybody in this world is looking for satisfaction. The problem is we're looking in the wrong places, but here's what you need to understand. You can have more money than you will ever be able to spend. You can have your choice of the most beautiful women or the most handsome men. You can have more power and more fame than anybody else on earth. 
But those things will never satisfy the deep longing in your soul. You're going to always be longing for something more. That's why Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones saying, I can't get no satisfaction. And it just wasn't them, it's all of us. You can't get any satisfaction in this world. And Bruce Springsteen didn't know it, but he was biblical when he said, everybody's got a hungry heart. Each and every one of us are hungry for something that cannot be found in this world. Every one of us is looking for something to fill the emptiness in our soul. And the reason is because we were created for more than this world. We were created for a relationship with God that can only be fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who can fill your hungry heart. Jesus is the one who can satisfy your soul. Notice what it says in verse 35. Jesus replied, whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty again. He's not talking about physical hunger and thirst. He's saying, you come to me and I'll meet your deepest needs. And the things that you think this world can satisfy you with, you'll discover they can't. And what you're looking for, you'll find in me, and you will be satisfied. The psalmist said this, If you seek the Lord with all your heart, he will give you the desires of your heart. Now some people take that verse and what they try to interpret it to mean is, if I put Jesus first, if I really seek him, then he's going to give me whatever I ask for. But that's not what it's saying. What it's saying is when you really seek after God, you'll discover you've got the desire of your heart. Because that's what you really want. That's what you really need. In Greek mythology, there's a story of King Tantalus, who was punished in the underworld by being chained in a lake with water up to his chin. And whenever he would get thirsty and he would put his head down to quench his thirst with the water, the water would recede so he could never get water. Above his head were branches and branches of the choicest of fruit. But whenever he would reach his hand up to get fruit, to to quench his appetite, the branches would withdraw. And, And from that story of King Tantalus, we have an English word, tantalize. And the word tantalize means to be in torment with the promise of something that is unattainable. And you see, that's how it is for man when we're seeking to satisfy the desires of our soul with the things of this world. It's not going to happen. And you're to discover that you're in torment. That's why Augustine said, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. B.B. McKinney wrote a song years back called I Am Satisfied, and the song goes like this, I am satisfied with Jesus. He has done so much for me. He has suffered to redeem me. He has died to set me free. You're only deceiving yourself. If you think you can find satisfaction by leaving Jesus out of your life or by living your life with him on the periphery of your life. 
No, you have to seek after him. And when you do, he's going to give you the desires of your heart. Jesus brings salvation as the bread of life. Jesus brings satisfaction as the bread of life. But there's a third thing he tells us here. Jesus brings us security. Listen to what he says, beginning in verse 36. It says, but you haven't believed in me, even though you have seen me. However, those the Father has given me will come to me, and I will never reject them. For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. And this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of those he has given me, but that I should raise them up at the last day. Now that phrase, I will never reject, is a double negative in the Greek. Now in the English language, in case you don't know, it's bad English to use a a double negative. When I was in, in high school in an honors English class, the teacher asked a question and I say, well, I'm not never going to do that. And, and she said, excuse me, what did you say? And I can't remember what I said, but I, I used another double negative. And she said, get out of my class. Go to the principal's office. And I went, why? I wasn't being a smart addict. I was just stupid. I didn't know any better. A double negative in English isn't good. But a double negative in Greek is emphatic. You see, what Jesus is saying is absolutely, positively, by no means is God ever going to reject you. But then Jesus says that he will not lose even one the Father has given him. He's not going to lose one. Now, my wife, she loses things. She does. She loses her pocketbook. She loses her glasses. She loses her keys. She even loses her car in the parking lot. But she's fortunate because I'm a finder. She loses her pocketbook, I find it. She loses her keys, I find them. She loses her glasses, I find them. She loses her phone, I find it. She loses her car, I find it. But Jesus is never going to lose not even one of those the Father has given him. You see, what you need to understand is your security isn't dependent upon you holding on to God. Your security is dependent upon God holding on to you. And let me tell you, God's got a grip. And you never need to worry about God losing his grip on you. And your eternal security isn't dependent upon whether you can lose your salvation. Your eternal security is dependent upon whether God can ever lose you. And I'm here to tell you, God's not going to lose you. Your eternal security is secure with God. Because it's not based upon you, it's based upon him. And there are some of you here in this room that you're you're fearful. What if I do something that's going to cause God not to love me anymore? What if I commit that sin that's going to cause God to say you're no longer in my family? And I'm here to tell you, if you're a child of God, that ain't going to happen. And I know you shouldn't use ain't. It's just not going to happen. You were secure in his arms. God has blessed me with four kids. I love them unconditionally. God has blessed me with ten beautiful grandkids, and I love them even more. I mean, I love my kids. I love my grandkids, and here's what I know. My kids, my grandkids, they can do things that disappoint me and break my heart, but they can never do 
anything that will cause me to say, you're not part of my family anymore. I love them too much for that. And if I, a sinful human being, can love my children that much where I'm going to say, it doesn't matter what you do, you're mine and I love you then how much more does the Heavenly Father love us? Now you say, but what if I willfully reject Him? And I'm just here to tell you that if you know Him, you're not going to willfully reject Him. Because to know Him is to love Him. Is there a chance that you're going to let Him down? Yes. Is there a chance that you're going to deny Him at times? Well, that's... That's a chance. Peter did. And yet Jesus used Peter to change the world, didn't he? You see, you and I can blow it as children of God. But he'll never stop loving us. But the story doesn't end there. Because the story goes on and and John tells us that Because of what Jesus said, a lot of the people that were following Jesus stopped following him. You see, they were close to him in proximity. They heard his teachings, but they really didn't understand who he was. You see, you need to understand something. Everyone who claims to be a disciple isn't really a disciple. Let me say that again. Everyone who claims to be a disciple isn't really a disciple. Notice what it says in verse 66. It said, at this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Now, it's important for you to notice Jesus didn't desert them. They deserted Jesus. You say, well, didn't they, weren't they saved and they were following Jesus and yet they then were not following Jesus? Well, yeah, they were following him. Why? Because he fed their bellies. They didn't really know him or who he was or what he came to do. They were following him for selfish reasons. And the church, by the way, is filled with people like that. People who walk down an aisle, pray a prayer, get dunked in water. And man, they have a smile on their face. They have a spring in their step. But then something happens, and you don't see them anymore. And you hear that they've gone back into the world. They've rejected the faith. What about them? Well, John talks about them in in 1 John. He says they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they were of us, they would have continued with us. It's not that they lost their salvation. It's that they never had it in the first place. To know Jesus is to love Jesus. If you're afraid that you'll stop loving Jesus, you need to get a better dose of Jesus. Because you'll never stop loving him. So Jesus looked, he saw that the crowd of people had left. And now it was just 12, the 12 disciples. And he says a few verses earlier that even one of them was going to leave him. And Jesus turns to him and he says, well, are you going to leave me too? And Peter says this, how could we ever possibly leave? Lord, you have the words that give eternal life. You're the Holy One of God. 
Peter said, where would we go? Who would we go to? There's salvation found in you and you alone. Peter got it. The crowd didn't. Are you like Peter? Are you like the crowd? You see, the bread of life, Jesus, he gives salvation, he brings satisfaction, and he gives you security from the moment you're saved to the moment you see him face to face. Do you know him? Do you really know him? Because a lot of those who were following him said they knew him. And then they turned their back and they quit following him. Don't be one of those. Make sure that you know Jesus. Because when you do, he will give you satisfaction this world never will. And he will give you security so that you will stay with him until the day you die. And you see him face to face with a smile on his face saying, welcome home. I love you. I want you to bow your head. I want you to close your eyes. With your head bowed, with your eyes closed, I want you to think about that for just a minute. Do you really know Jesus as the bread of life? Has he saved you? Have you found satisfaction in him or are you still looking? Do you know that your salvation is secure because it's not based upon you, it's based upon him and what he's done? If you're here and you're not sure, then I invite you to settle it right here, right now. If you really want to do that, you can pray this prayer to him right now. Just pray it from a humble, sincere heart. Dear Jesus. I come to you today admitting I'm a sinner. I've been living life my way. I've been acting as if I were in control. Forgive me. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sins. Jesus, I believe you rose from the dead to set me free. Today I'm trusting you. I'm asking you to save me. I'm asking you to take control of my life. I'm giving it all to you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Make me bread. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing my prayer.